Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bastards of Boston Baseball. This is kind of going to be a unique episode, and why I'm saying that is I am here all by myself, and it's going to be a very rant-style episode. Probably will introduce a couple conspiracy theories as to what might be going on behind the scenes with our frustrating Red Sox. And so I'll be getting into plenty of stuff here. I'm guessing it'll be at least a 20-minute show. But before I do, this is a Christmas morning drop. So some of you might be listening to this on the way to your family gathering or on your morning walk or what have you. And if you're unfortunate enough to be working today, um, perhaps we'll be keeping you company uh, for at least a few minutes and giving you something to think about. But I hope everybody's having a good holiday weekend. So basically, the the source of a lot of frustration of Red Sox fans this week is the fact that we didn't get Yoshinobu Yamamoto. He ended up signing with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And now that I've had some time to process that, I don't think the Red Sox even submitted a formal offer on him because if you go back to a few days before he signed, this would have been Monday, it was revealed that they hadn't even taken a single offer from any of the prospective teams. They were simply meeting with executives, getting a feel for the organization. He toured uh, some of the New York ones. I think he met uh, with the Dodgers uh, in L.A., I don't know if he went up to San Francisco, but he did meet with their executives. And uh, so I I think the Red Sox basically saw the writing on the wall, where the numbers were going, and then chose not to not to compete anymore is, is what I think. I could be wrong, but we're not hearing any reports of a concrete offer. We know exactly what the Yankees offered. We know exactly what the Mets offered. And uh, nothing so far out of Boston. Uh, none of the beat writers seem to be able to get that information as well. And if the Red Sox did, in fact, not make an offer, surely they would not want us to know about that. So just my suspicions. But that's not even the big source of my frustration this week. It's not the biggest source, I should say. The biggest source of my frustration, and I haven't been infuriated by anything as much as this in well over a year. Going back to the, well, I shouldn't say well over a year. It was almost exactly a year ago uh, when Corey Kluber got signed. And, And what this is, is yesterday, so this would be Saturday, the Red Sox, according to WEEI's Rob Bradford, are reportedly showing strong interest in bringing back James Paxton. Strong interest in bringing back James Paxton. To me, that's that's infuriating. If we make that move, I think we're out of the 2024 MLB playoffs 
Because like I've been suspecting all along, going back to the Tyler O'Neill trade, the bar has been set so low. And everybody criticized me for my take on the Tyler O'Neill trade, which is fine. I mean, I, I get criticized every day. It's just, <laughs> that's just another day in the life of Terry. But Tyler O'Neill was worthless. The St. Louis Cardinals took a nothing package and sent him over to us. And then we had to take on his $5 million salary. So as far as the the Cardinals were concerned, it was a $5 million salary dump. And the Red Sox were dumb enough to take it. This dude has been injured almost his entire career outside of 2021. Can't stay on the field. His His numbers aren't off the charts. There's just not a lot of value there. There, there was no reason for a big market team that's trying to flip the narrative on the way things have been the last few years to acquire a player like this. And in our private war room, I pulled all the hosts in there, all my co-hosts, and I said, are you guys out on Paxton as well? Surprisingly, I'm not going to name names here. Two of them were somewhat open-minded. And I explained to one of them, I said, Paxton's not being brought in as your number five starter. And then you're still going to go get two others. He's going to be one of the two moves that the Red Sox make. One of the moves we're hoping is, is a Lucas Giolito type guy. And... So Paxton is, is going to go basically into that slot and he's going to be put in a position in the Red Sox rotation where he's expected to give you 25 to 30 starts, which he hasn't done since 2019, his age 30 season. He's 35 years old. The dude is completely busted. And I, I explained to a couple of my co-hosts in that chat. I said, you're not, you're not getting a, a Jordan Montgomery type guy. That's just not where things are trending. And then finally, you know, they started to come around a little bit and you got to look at the big picture, even though some of these moves look small, it's a sign of what's to come in the grand scheme of things. And there's no indication so far that the Red Sox are really trying to do anything different than they have the last couple of years. Let's get back to Paxton real quick. So the Red Sox signed him in 2022 with the expectation he's going to pitch most of that season for us. And then they gave him a $4 million player option. For him to decide whether he wanted to stick around in 2023. Well, he doesn't pitch at all in 2022 because he had a lat strain when he was coming back from Tommy John. I think he was supposed to come back in June or July. And he was reported to be throwing pretty hard in spring training. So that suggested he wasn't that far away. And then he strains his lat muscle and then promptly misses the whole season. So you get nothing for him there. He exercised his player option because he had no choice. He had no value on the open market. Nobody wanted any part of giving James Paxton 
more than $4 million. So he had to exercise his player option. And then he, he pulls his hamstring in, in spring training in 2023, I think in his first outing. And we, he didn't pitch until March 12th. And then he pitched pretty well for a while. Until about, I don't know, early August. Then things started slipping. And then he had knee inflammation. And I think he missed a start. They skipped his start once. He came back, had no command, couldn't command anything. And then uh, his last start was on September 1st against the Kansas City Royals. Only went one and one third innings. Recorded four outs, gave up six earned runs. Got slapped around. They said they were hoping to get him right before the end of the year, but guess what? He goes on the IL with knee inflammation, doesn't pitch again. This is a busted player who is completely cooked. Completely cooked. If he's on the Red Sox roster in 2024, he's going to have the year that Corey Kluber had last year. The Red Sox milked most likely the last of what he had left. There's no reason to bring back a guy like James Paxton if your goal is to finally compete for, at a minimum, a wild card and maybe go after the division. Something we haven't done since 2018, actually. Yeah, that was the last time we won the American League East. Made the playoffs one time since then. But you can't. You can't say with a straight face that James Paxton has all the potential to pitch 25 to 30 starts, 150 or more innings, and and be taken seriously. You can't do that. That's that's completely unrealistic. That is not going to happen. 29 other GMs out there are going to look at this guy as extremely high risk and not worth bringing back. That's the only way to look at James Paxton. Now, if you've got a loaded rotation and you want to take a flyer on him, fine, go ahead. There are some teams that have deep rotations and they can do that. The Red Sox don't have a deep rotation. They have an extremely shallow rotation. Chris Sale's going to pitch 12 to 14 starts of which Eight or nine of them will be good. He'll be slapped around in the rest of them, and then he's going to get hurt because that's what Chris Sale does at age 35. Bayo will probably be solid. Nick Pavetta and, and Cutter Crawford, those are two guys that have more upside than James Paxton, and they're already on your rotation. They're already, well, I shouldn't say in your rotation. Hopefully, at least both of them won't be maybe one of them will be your number five starter but but both of them have more upside and they're already in-house so it, it just adds to a long list of reasons why you don't bring back James Paxton you don't do it he gave you nothing in 2022 teased you a little bit in 2023 but was ultimately a bust in a at least part of the reason we missed the playoffs. So there's no reason to bring him back in 2024. I just can't. It's hard to wrap your head around that. 
Like it's the same, it's the same business model as the last few seasons. Sign a guy to a one-year deal, even though he's extremely injury prone and doesn't quite get it done, you know, when he is healthy, and hope for the best. That's that's been basically the business model the last few years. Go get Lucas Giolito. Yeah, he's been a mess the last couple of years, but he's been healthy. There's there's hope that you can turn him around. That's the guy you want to target. If you're targeting a guy like James Paxton over Giolito, what are we doing? What are we doing? How can you tell me with a straight face like, like Tom Warner did and say, we're going full throttle because you're stuck in reverse. You're not even in the right gear. You're going backwards into the, the same formula of failure that that we've already experienced we know how this movie ends it's extremely frustrating and we're not going to get jordan montgomery and by the way after explaining my skepticism of that last night in the worm sean mcadam came out this morning on mass live from where he's a writer and said he asked I can't remember if it was a Red Sox, someone tied to the Red Sox or just another outside executive with familiarity of the Red Sox. He said, well, do you think Jordan Montgomery is still an option for the Red Sox? And apparently he was scoffed at and said the Red Sox aren't going anywhere near those type of salaries. So now that's essentially been reported. My suspicions have basically been reported by Sean McAdams in in mass live so i mean that that tells me all all we need to know and if you think oh they're gonna pivot to blake snell no they're not because he's got a he's got a qualifying offer attached to him so the red sox will have to give up a pick and they're actually on record one of the things they're actually been honest about was yeah we're probably not going to target those guys so blake snell is is out so you've got two slots to fill one of them might go to Paxton. Who are you putting in the other one? It really seems like the Red Sox aren't willing to sign anything more than a one-year deal. I guarantee you that's what they were. I, I shouldn't say I guarantee you because, again, I don't have sources on it. But I'm willing to make a healthy wager that th when the, the Royals came at Lugo with three years, the Red Sox obviously out. They didn't want to go beyond one year. They had interest in, let's see, Luis Sever Severino and one other player who got a one-year deal. And they didn't sign them, uh, presumably, because they got more. You know, they weren't willing to go $13 million on Severino. So, and and then another guy they're in on right now, and it, it sounds like there's momentum, but I, I, you know, I've walked into this before and completely fell for it with, with other people. One of them was, uh, was, excuse me, Lugo. The Red Sox apparently are very interested in Teoscar Hernandez, but I'm, again, I'm willing to make a healthy wager that... They're only interested in him if he's going to get a one-year deal. They were interested in Lourdes Gurriel, who I actually wanted, who a couple of us on the crew actually wanted. 
and he he got a three year deal, very affordable, fourteen million a year for three years with the Diamondbacks. So the Red Sox were out because it was too many years. So now I think they're just hoping that Hernandez will be the guy that finally accepts the one year offer that they're probably looking to sign him to. And I wouldn't hate adding Tay Oscar. I think he has, he will bring a ton more value and a ton more stability than a guy like Tyler O'Neill. But Tay Oscar did strike out 211 times last year, which is terrible. 200 is a terrible threshold if that's what you're flirting with. 175 is would would be bad as well. But 200 you're like off the charts. Not many baseball players really hang around in the majors for very long if they're if they're consistently flirting with 200 strikeouts or above. Their careers are probably going to end. So that's where he was at last year. Typically, he's like 150 to 170 in the strikeout department. Has tons of power, which is very attractive. And uh, had some good years with Toronto. I think he was, let's see, I think he was with the Mariners last year. Don't quote me. I'm fairly certain. But either way, I'll take him. I'll take him because you know what you're getting. And I think he'll have a, a very, at least from an offensive standpoint he'll essentially give you what hunter renfro gave you a couple years ago so i'm good with that but he better be willing to take a one-year deal because we're not committing to guys long term just like we haven't there's been no change so let's kind of get into some actually i gotta make one more point on the pitching when you're when you're doing a solo show like this by the way Tons more notes than normal. I have terrible handwriting. And then when I start writing things down, I come up with stuff later. So I have to write it in a weird spot on the page to kind of keep it with the other topics. So I'm a little little scatterbrained. But again, um, so the other point I wanted to make, and it's in regards to pitching, is... Let's say we're going to sign Paxton. Let's say that's going to happen here within the next 72 hours. You know, it's a funky time because we got the Christmas holiday. We got New Year's uh, a week later. You know, it's a weird time for a free agency. Not, Not in the office a lot, I'm assuming. But when you're seeing these guys come off the board and then you see the utter trash that we're targeting... Look back to some of the signings that happened. Uh, one of them being Seth Lugo, three years, forty-five million. Not a, not a massive contract. Eduardo Rodriguez, four years, eighty million. He's making twenty million per year. And then Sonny Gray, three years, seventy-five million. So that's twenty-five million per. All short-term deals, nothing of major consequence. Not massive money. Okay, now we we're a very mixed crew on those three names. Uh, I was interested in a couple of them, a couple other hosts not so much interested in a couple of them. But at the end of the winter, when you see the guys we do end up with, we're gonna look back on those signings, those three signings, and probably a couple more that end up happening, and say, man. 
we would have been in much better shape had we just given them the deal and and went with one of those players. A good example of this is go back to last year. Foolishly, I thought Bloom was actually going to target some good pitching. And at the beginning of last winter, I, I looked at a guy like Chris Bassett, and I'm like, eh, I, I don't want Bassett. Doesn't throw hard. Yeah, he's serviceable. Yeah, he stays healthy. But hopefully the bar is set higher than Chris Bassett. Well, you get Corey Kluber, and uh, and then Paxton picks up his options, uh, his player option, and and then I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> Chris Bassett would have been amazing. He would have been a great signing. And so, in hindsight, it, it, things are are much different in February. Like Paxton would have been, he, I'd be, uh, not Paxton Bassett. I'd be happy to have Bassett in in this year's rotation. And, <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's extremely frustrating. And I think I am going to look back and be like, you know what? Eduardo Rodriguez probably would have been fine. And I coveted Sonny Gray. I was one of the ones that was like Cy Young runner up, 34 years old, pitching as good as he ever has. Yeah, the big market thing is a bit of a boogeyman, but you know what? I bet 34-year-old Sonny Gray can probably handle it at this point. And I would have I would have taken that risk. But anyway, all right, let's get into some conspiracy theories first. But before I do, um I got a list of the executives that declined. Well, let me actually let me let me reframe it. Pointing out the patterns that I have of very much, this is a very, if if you, you didn't know any better, if you didn't know Bloom got fired and there was no way to figure that out a year ago and you saw Tyler O'Neill, James Paxton, Cooper Criswell, if you didn't know any better, you'd be like, oh my God, Haim is up to his same old crap. He's giving you the same crap he's been giving you. Well, Bloom's been fired, but you're still getting, you know, you're still getting the Bloomonomics 101. Same formula, same philosophy, same everything. And what I'm wondering here is how much authority does Craig Breslow actually have? Is he just, is he the one calling the shots or is he just like one of three people or four people in the front office, you know, who all have essentially equal authority, equal influence. And the reason why I'm, I'm asking this, uh, the reason I'm questioning how much authority Breslow actually has is look at the list of guys that, that didn't want to come here. Brandon Gomes, he's the Dodgers GM under Andrew Friedman, said no. He was the guy, he was the most popular name last winter. And unanimously on this crew, all six of us wanted Brandon Gomes to take over for Hein Bloom. And Gomes said no. Another guy that said no was Sam Fold. He's the current Phillies GM under Dave Dombrowski. Another person that said no, notice I said person and not another guy, Kim Eng, very well respected, uh, got fired from, well, I think she technically stepped down from the Marlins after not 
really wanting to go along with their new philosophy. Either way, she leaves the Marlins front office and tells the Red Sox, nope, not interested. Another former Marlins executive, and he's a current MLB executive, Michael Hill said, nope, no thank you. He, was in the, he wasn't the GM, but he was in their front office in 2003 when they beat the Yankees in the World Series. So another guy who's had a front row seat to history, uh, not interested in the Red Sox. John Daniels, he's a current Tampa Bay Rays executive, said no thank you to the Red Sox. He was also the GM with the Texas Rangers the years they went to the World Series in 2010-2011. Nearly won it in 2011, was one strike away until Nelson Cruz forgot how to play right field. If they had an average right fielder out there, Texas wins that World Series and then... John Daniels has a has a ring. But he says no. Derek Falvey, who is another guy they tried to approach uh, when they hired. Well, actually, maybe they didn't. He was just rumored to be a person of interest uh, in the Heim Bloom uh, round of hirings uh, four years ago. But he's the current Minnesota Twins president of baseball operations. He said no to the Boston Red Sox. And he's very well respected and. Keeps that team pretty competitive with a mid-market salary. Uh, Another person that said no was Chris Antonetti. He's the president of baseball operations for the Cleveland Guardians. No thank you to the Boston Red Sox. He would prefer to stay in Cleveland, which doesn't sound like a destination city, and, uh, you know, keep that tiny small market salary and, and keep doing business there rather than come to Boston. Uh, Mike Hazen, another popular choice, said no thank you. Uh, It's hard to blame him because the Diamondbacks are really at the beginning of a four or five year window. And, you know, why leave it at this point when you work so hard to build that? But he said no thank you. Uh, His right hand man, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, Emil, I think, Sade. Uh, He's the, the number two under Hazen. Uh, spent a long time with the Red Sox. Uh, he was there at least from, I think, before 2004 uh, until about 2018. Uh, he's got three rings with the Red Sox. So a very long tenured guy who spent a lot of time in the front office. No interest in coming back. He wanted to stay in Arizona. Finally, last guy, James Click, another guy extremely coveted. Came from Tampa initially, went to Houston, basically was their GM in 2022, or excuse me, yeah, 2022, when they won the World Series, and then infamously stepped down. He was basically forced out of the office. Uh, You know, he was only offered a one-year extension by Jim Crane, the Astros owner, and said no thank you and uh, went to Toronto and is an executive with them. No interest in joining the Red Sox. Interestingly, James Click, again, having spent all that time with Tampa, apparently close friends with Heim Bloom. So the reason I just spent five minutes going through this list is what did they know about the job that they knew they weren't going to like? What conditions were going to come along with this job 
that they were not going to like. The beat writers and the national writers don't seem to be asking this question. There's a reason all these people who had major clout didn't want to be a GM in one of the most prestigious sports franchises in the history of the world. Why didn't they why didn't they want to come here? And it's hard to not be suspicious when all these weird moves are happening. Why is this big market acting like the smallest market team in Major League Baseball? One-year deals, cheap money, broken players coming in. Players that have all these red flags attached to them as to why they're not going to lead you to the promised land. And then come to find out uh, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> they blow up, they get hurt. They don't perform. Uh, in some cases, their careers end in Boston. What, what's going on here? And I think there were some serious conditions that, Craig Breslow probably had to agree to. Again, I'm speculating here, but there's been no change. There has been no change at all. And since Bloom got fired in early mid-September, there really hasn't been a ton of relief. There was the day he got fired and like for a couple days after, but then the anxiety of, okay, who's coming in? Who's going to take over and what's the vision going to be? What's the philosophy going to be? And then come to find out at least 10 executives that we know of didn't want the job. That's a major red flag. That's a major red flag. And then finally, their 11th choice, at least their 11th choice, Craig Breslow says, okay, I'll take the job. A couple other guys that were that interviewed and had interest, uh, Gabe Kapler, who is this epic failure of a manager. He did have that one good year in, in San Francisco, 107 wins, but has had some minor controversies along the way and just hasn't really, you know, been able to establish himself as a manager. So he wanted the job. Nobody wanted him. You know, on social media, very unpopular pick. Neil Huntington was a finalist. He was terrible, in my opinion, for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Got nothing back. Got fleeced in the Glass Now trade. Got fleeced, I think, in the Garrett Cole trade. Just a terrible executive. So they're only attracting the bad ones. And and then Breslow took the job. So it's just it's just really strange to me and one of the interesting things going on right now is the the beat writers aren't really giving the front office a lot of passes. There's a lot of criticism here and if you go on Red Sox Twitter, they had a nice tweet uh, just uh, I think it was yesterday just wishing everybody a happy holidays they they did this nice little video to put on there it's kind of like a commercial with with Wally and all these Red Sox gifts and Christmas trees in the background and Christmas uh, decorations and they they said we hope you all have a happy and safe holiday 
98% of the comments were F you, sell the team, you're a disgrace. It's terrible. Like, they're not even safe on social media. They should literally delete their Twitter account at this point. Like, like why have it? You know, you're just going to get rained down on by your frustrated fans who aren't buying any of your BS. It's hard to ignore. And the ironic thing here is the Bluminati, as I love to call them, they're they're having a field day right now because it was their theory that ownership roadblocked Heim Bloom. And, you know, it's hard to not give some credence to that. The, a couple of things that I can't reconcile with that theory with Bloom is the fact that he was over the luxury tax in 2022 that was his third season so in his third season he goes over the luxury tax so if it was a mandate to stay under it he wouldn't have been over it ownership would have blocked him from doing it and then in late july when it was fairly obvious we weren't going to make the postseason he had every chance to get under it all he had to do was trade nathan avaldi and you're under the tax and he ended up staying over it so I find it hard to believe that ownership, and I'm being kind of facetious saying this, but I would find it hard to believe ownership told him, yeah, yeah, go over the tax this year, but just do it with a bunch of trash. And and then if you get a chance to stay under it, screw it, stay over it. We love penalties. So I, I just can't fully get there with, with ownership had a metaphorical gun to his head and roadblocked all these plans he might have had. But maybe there was some influence there. It's hard to, I can't dismiss that either. I really can't. But so the Bluminati is right now having a field day because they, they feel kind of vindicated here that ownership was in fact roadblocking him and preventing him from doing so many things. And why that's ironic is, it's not really going to matter because the anti-Bloom people and the pro-Bloom people are, are basically aligning themselves together here. Craig Breslow and ownership are, are being targeted by us. It, it's like all-out war on social media right now. It's all-out war. And the beat writers haven't exactly joined the war, and perhaps they, they won't. In, in a way, but I think they're going to be providing us plenty of ammunition along the way. And an example of that was just today from, from Sean McAdams saying it doesn't look like the Red Sox are remotely prioritizing Jordan Montgomery. And so uh, <laughs> I don't, and maybe, maybe they don't care. I, I don't know. They had to have $1 tickets for the Yankee series, the final series in September, just to make the crowd look full. That's the one thing that does bother ownership is seeing all those empty seats. It's it's like the elephant in the room, and they, they don't want that being shown on TV. So $1 tickets, at least get the fans in there, at least improve the optics a little bit. I don't think they love that, but... 
I think we're going to I think we're going to see a lot of that. I really do. The the one tragic thing here for Red Sox fans, uh you know, the fans that actually want the team to win is that Fenway Park is a tourist attraction. Super casual baseball fans and even fans of other sports that aren't even interested in baseball go to Fenway Park just to experience it. Because it's essentially a museum, and there's no other park like it. No other park has the vibe that Fenway Park has. So the Red Sox sell tickets basically because of that. It's not like Kansas City or the south side of Chicago with the White Sox, where it's just going to be empty seats because these teams blow. So it, it's unfortunate because I, I wish fans would essentially boycott the team when they are bad and not support Red Sox owners financially by buying tickets, by buying 11 or $12 beers once they get in the park. A couple other things here I, I want to get into. <clears throat> One real quick, this is just a random thought that came into my mind, but looking back at the Devers signing, and how dramatic it was and how we were questioning whether it would even happen at all. Part of me wonders, seeing how things are playing out now, if Red Sox ownership actually thought there was a way they could get away with moving on from him and trading him or just not signing him and then getting the draft pick when he signs elsewhere. Part of me really wonders that, that they thought they could get away with this because they went about it in the worst possible way. If they would have extended him two years ago, that would have been at age 23 or 24, a 10-year deal, 200 to 250, that gets it done. But instead, you dragged it out and you let Devers get all the leverage and then you had to pay him $311. And I think they caved at the last minute. And part of the reason why I think this could be true and part of the reason why I think they might have caved is because if they didn't, they would have been forced to admit that they had this long-term strategy that wasn't going to be popular with Red Sox fans. This long-term strategy that wasn't going to involve spending. It wasn't going to involve you know, committing to really good players or even committing to winning. So I think by signing him, they avoided facing those questions or accusations even, being accused of not winning. So I think they had to sign him. And it's just something that, that I wonder. I, you could have signed Lourdes Gurriel to a very inconsequential three-year deal for $14 million a year. A big market, that's an easy move. You could do the same with Teoscar Hernandez or, or for at least two years. That's an easy move, but they're obsessing over years and they're obsessing over dollar amounts like big market teams don't do. So it's just one thing to question. Another thing, uh, this involves Alex Verdugo. So we probably should have covered that on the last show. We didn't, uh, we didn't discuss him, but he essentially had his press conference with the Yankees, which essentially was a Zoom call. It wasn't, 
you know, he wasn't sitting on a stage surrounded by New York media with cameras flashing and Yankees wallpaper in the background. It, w- it was a Zoom press conference. But what's what's tragic is he went after the wrong guy. He kind of took shots. Well, he didn't kind of do it. He took shots at Alex Cora. And he, he basically said, well, it's going to be fun to play for Aaron Boone because he doesn't air his players out and he backs his players and, and so on and so forth. What's tragic about this is if Alex Verdugo, instead of going after Cora, went after Red Sox ownership, we'd be having a much different conversation right now because those those comments would have been extremely popular with Red Sox fans I'm pretty sure if he would have said, I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to be with an organization that is obsessed with winning and every year winning a world series is a goal. I love the fact that I'm here and I'm going to get to be a part of that because I was not a part of that for four years. When I got traded to Boston, they did not make any real commitments to winning. I was not put in a good situation. And if you think about it, he really wasn't. I mean, you had that trash 2020 year, call it what it was. I don't even care about that year. 2021 was was nice, especially for Verdugo. He had a pretty good year. He hit 310 with a 383 on base in the postseason. He had a very good October. And I'm sure it was fun to to kind of go along for that ride. But after that, tons of failure. And he was in a clubhouse with Xander Bogarts, who, I don't know. I mean, he had a terrible 2022. (laughs) He was in a clubhouse with J.D. Martinez, just a bunch of Debbie Downers in that clubhouse with him. And it it just, it couldn't have been fun. And I'm not, it sounds like I'm making excuses for him. I mean, the effort could have been better, obviously. Apparently, he was late this year getting to the field, and that's why he was benched. One of the reasons he was benched, um, you know, that could have been avoided. I'm not saying that Alex Verdugo couldn't have been better in several ways, but he was far from the biggest problem. There were far bigger problems than, than Alex Verdugo, and he had some really cool moments. Like in the first half of 2023, had a couple of epic walk-offs, he dropped a couple of F-bombs in the post-game interview with Jemai Webster. And if you think about it, when Alex Verdugo was playing well, the team was playing well. It, it was relatively competitive. And then when Verdugo wasn't doing well, it wasn't things weren't good. <laughs> and, you know, he kind of he, he took the brunt of it in some ways for which he deserved in some degree. But Man, he had all the opportunity in the world to just trash the Red Sox, but instead he chose Alex Cora and just has been getting destroyed. Jonathan Papelbon said if you know in a tweet, in not so many words, I'm paraphrasing, that, you know, he would he would have punched him or something like that. And you know, so not not a smart move to try to throw Cora under the bus. And I don't think Aaron Boone is really was impressed with those comments because he's actually good friends with 
Alex Cora. They both worked at ESPN together. They're friends. They have a deep mutual respect for one another. Each of them have essentially said exactly that. And so it just wasn't a good move. Alex could have been a hero on the way out and trashed his former organization, but he didn't. So is what it is. Um, I guess on that, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Uh, you know, I kind of needed to vent and, uh, you know, if you're still, uh, with me at this point, I'm, I'm glad you sat along. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are, are feeling the same way. And, uh, you know, if you don't agree with me, at, le- at least I gave you something else to think about. And, uh, I just, I have pretty grave concerns about 2024. I don't think this is going to end up being a playoff team. I think the signings uh, from here out are going to be extremely underwhelming. And my expectations are low. I'm not ready to say we're not in the playoffs yet. I think I was uh, on January 1st last year. I was ready to to say it. And I, I think I did. You know, I, I said, we're not going to, we're going to finish below 500. So we'll see what the next couple of weeks bring. Um, we'll be back as things develop. And I uh, hope you all had a good uh, Christmas holiday and uh, had some good food with family. And um, I'm assuming we'll be back before the new year. But just in case, uh, be safe. If you're going out and Uber is a possibility, um, you know, choose that option. And, uh, you know, keep yourself out of trouble and be safe. Everyone take care.